different when you see them from the perspective of day-to-day life, okay? You're listening to Is That Really? Stories and conversations about what it means to be Israeli. Really. I'm Grant. And I'm Andrew. And on the show today, Ilana Dayan. Ilana is an Israeli investigative journalist, anchorwoman, and attorney. She is best known as host of the investigative television program, Uvda, on Israeli Channel 2, which was recently dubbed the Israeli 60 Minutes. Ilana was born in Argentina and immigrated to Israel with her family at the age of six. She was drafted to the Israeli Defense Forces during the First Lebanon War and served as producer, editor, and correspondent for the Israeli Army Radio and was the first woman correspondent in the station's history. Afterwards, she studied law at Tel Aviv University and went on to complete her PhD at Yale University. Now, she teaches courses on freedom of speech at Tel Aviv University. We spoke to Alana over the phone And in the middle of our conversation, the phone call recording app cut out unexpectedly. So we had to call her back and play the call on speaker and record it on Andrew's phone. So we apologize for the quality of the audio in the conversation, but the content and the stories that she told were really inspiring and exceptional. And we hope that you'll enjoy hearing from Alana as much as we enjoyed speaking to her. So without further ado, here is Alana Dion. I never had a master plan. I... uh I remember when I was about to join the military, like every youngster in Israel, uh, I guess I heard over the radio or I saw it on the newspaper that if you want to join the military radio station, you have to send a postcard. It was 1982. You have to send a postcard and hope for the better and hope for the best and hope for them to invite you for an interview or for a general uh, test that I guess a thousand people applied to and uh, or even more and so i you know i sent the postcard and forgot all about it and in the meanwhile i started uh the 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 the, the tests or the selection process to the military intelligence which sounded for me much more important and much more lucrative than the military radio station so I, it's not that i had it burning inside me that i have to be a journalist it just so happened that, you know, I got invited to this general uh, knowledge test, and I, I passed this first test, and then I was uh, invited to another one, and then to a personal interview. And the story goes that when they invited me to this personal interview, to which only, I guess, 100 people are invited after the selection process, most of it is over and done with. Um, and the story goes, and it's, it's a true story, that uh, they knew that I... My address was Derech Hanitachon, which in Hebrew means Victory Road. This is the address of my parents' home. And um, and the days were the days of the first Lebanon war. And they asked me, we see that you live on Victory Road. Do you know after which victory this street is named? And I said, well, I have to tell you that I'm not sure, but not very far away from my home, this Victory Road has an intersection with another road, the name of which is Peace Road. Do you have any kind of idea after which peace it is named? Uh, Because it was yet another wartime in Israel. So if you guys don't know which peace this road is named after, I certainly don't know which victory my road is named after. 
and and so uh, I figure it it didn't take much for me to you know to 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 fall in love with the profession of bringing the story, telling the story, and saying something meaningful meaningful about the reality in which we live. This is where it cut out, and then we called her back. Um. That was super fascinating with the with the whole peace with the uh, peace road and the uh, well. Um, I guess from that we are uh, wondering what are the ch- uh, what are in your opinion the uh, challenges that the that uh, that the media faces today when attempting to accurately portray the Israeli narrative. You mentioned how complex it is. Israeli society is today both 
very still very close and and small and and in in many instances it, it enjoys a high degree of solidarity on the other hand is very tribal you have the orthodox you have the light say the light uh, orthodox or the what we call the team lumin the 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 you have right and left and you have arabs and druze and you have christians and muslims it's a tribal society and 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 the even more important than that is the fact that that the, the current government in israel takes advantage of the tribal society and netanyahu is catering to his base he's he's specifically making it a point that he is basing his power his popularity his longevity in power on his base he's, he's not looking to the other side of the aisle and and so the israeli society is both divided and undivided is both tribal and still enjoys a high degree of solidarity so it's, it's confusing what we as reporters have to bear in mind is that one we should never work for government I mean, we have to make it a point that we don't work from, for them, but we don't work for the opposition either. And, and it's complicated because in, in some instances, although we, we should bear in mind that we have to be objective and neutral and impartial, there are some instances, and, and it's very complicated to, to identify those instances, in which you have to make, to, to, you have to stand for something. And that something can make you look as if you're not objective, as if you're not impartial. For instance, if you speak up against the fact that the Prime Minister is now looking to get some kind of immunity and, and not face his indictments, okay? This is something that I think we as reporters, as journalists, as the agents of free speech and democracy in this society, we have to speak up about it, okay? Uh, we have to speak up every time the press is labeled as the enemy of the people. We have to speak up every time a group of our society is marginalized. We have to speak up every time somebody who is weak to begin with is silenced. Now, when you speak up, you don't look impartial. On the other hand, you have to be very careful and, and bear in mind that even if you don't like many of the things the government is doing, it's still our government. And it's still the way democracy works. So if you ask me, the most tricky thing is to to know that from the other, to know when it is the time to speak up and when it is the time to stay so-called objective and impartial. And that's that's not an easy task. And with all of these um, divisions within Israeli society, I know a big topic of debate is the fact that Israel is both a Jewish state and a democratic state and how to balance this dichotomy of identity. Uh, what's your opinion on the future of Israel and the challenges that, it, that, that it's going to have to overcome? Well, it's, a, it's, it's, uh, it's a question which I, I guess is it's too big to, to answer. I, I'm not sure that I have a good answer. I, I'll tell you again, perhaps two contradicting responses. One is that I, I, I am worried. I am worried because we don't speak, we hardly speak, about the conflict. The conflict has, you know, gone out of fashion. It is not trendy to speak about the conflict, about what happens 
between Israelis and Palestinians about what will what will be the end result, how will that be solved? It's not even an issue in the public discussion in Israel. It's not even an issue in last elections or in the upcoming elections. It's as if most Israelis a think that the status quo can you know can keep up forever, and b that um, life is good. You know why bother? Everything can stay the way it is, which is not the case, which is not the case because stuff is going on and rockets are showering from Gaza and Palestinians are under occupation and there is still a security threat to Israel and, and both from a point of view of national security and truly from a point of view of the democratic future of Israel, something has to be done. But Israelis are kind of inert, kind of indifferent, kind of not interested. And I can understand why, because they're disillusioned, because every time anybody, any leader tried to hand out a compromise or any kind of generous generous offer to the Palestinians, we were rewarded with another wave of violence. But be that as it may, a conflict, as I told you, is irrelevant to the Israeli public debate, and, and, and it's, it's not good news. This is one thing that worries me. The other thing that worries me is that Amos Oz, the late Israeli author, said if there will be one state uh, between the sea and the river, it will not be a democratic state uh, because millions of Palestinians will not have uh, civil rights or democratic rights. This is something which my parents who came here from South America in 1970 didn't envision. My grandparents that were Zionists and emigrated from Russia to or from Hungary to South America didn't envision. And myself... When I joined the Zionist venture, when I came to this country, and you know, ever since I see myself as a Zionist, as an Israeli, as, a, as a, an Israeli patriot, but I see myself as part of a democratic Jewish state, both democratic and Jewish. And it will not be both democratic and Jewish if we don't resolve the conflict with the Palestinians. And the third thing that worries me is that the assault on democratic institutions, the press, the attorney general, the state controller, the Supreme Court, the police even, the assault lodged by certain parts of the Israeli body politic don't, you know, are not good news for Israeli democracy. Now, it, it never happens overnight. Democracies don't die overnight, but they do die in the darkness. If you don't pay attention, if you're not alert enough, if you don't notice and identify those cracks that can become wider and wider, then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you ask yourself what happened to the you know, to the place that I knew, to the democracy in which I grew up. So those are my worries. On the brighter side of the of the moon, uh, I think that because there is a certain DNA to Israeli democracy, because Israelis uh, are very uh, fast on their feet, on their feet, because they are interested in what happens beyond their, you know, their doors, beyond their private sphere. Because they go to the military, because their kids go to the military, because their son-in-law is in the military, because they, anything can happen to any of us when we cross the street or where we go, you know, to visit the old town in Jerusalem. Because of all those things, we feel part of the public sphere. And as long as our business is everybody's business, as long as an individual feels part of the collectivity, 
then there's less of a chance that democracy will die because as long as the citizens are citizens in the full and deep sense of the term, as long as they feel part of the enterprise called Israel, there's less of a chance that this amazing enterprise of us will disappear or vanish or become something else. So eventually, uh, after everything is said and done, I guess I try to be more optimistic than pessimistic as far as the future of Israel is concerned. Thank you for that response, and uh, you're certainly very qualified to uh, to give a prediction on the future of Israel and its uh, ability to maintain itself as a democracy. Um, I'm wondering if there are any experiences that you've had, either personally or professionally, that have been really influential in forming your 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 undyingly optimistic perspective, um, despite all of the worries that you listed. ago, I was covering the civil war in Somalia, and I traveled with the director of a program, his name is Gilad, uh, to Somalia, which is not a, you know, not a very happy place to be in. And I was using my Argentinian passport, because it's safer to travel not with an Israeli passport in these parts of the world. And we were traveling back home, and on the way from to Tel Aviv, we had to board, to board a plane in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. And we were about to board the plane, and I handed the passport uh, to the guy at the gate, and he said, Madam, you need a visa to board the plane to Israel. And I said, listen, I, I don't need a visa to go to Israel. I'm an Israeli. And he said, Madam, you are showing me an Argentinian passport, an Argentinian citizen needs a visa to board a plane from Ethiopia to Israel. And I said, and immediately, you know, I handed him the Israeli passport, and I figured nobody will ever ask me for a visa to get to Israel. So the sense that this is my home, this is my place, this is where nothing bad can really happen to me, this is something which is very, very strong. I'll give you another example. Um, I was privileged to join uh, a, a, a Marine battalion in Afghanistan, like I guess also something like six years ago. Um, and I was embedded with them for a week. And I got, you know, close to one of the guys. His name was Andrew from Ohio. And about a year after we met in Afghanistan, he sent me an email that he is coming to visit Israel. He's in college now, he's writing a paper about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and he wants to come to Israel. And so, of course, I invited him to stay with us in our home. And two amazing things happened. One is that my daughter, the very same week, she finished the officer's academy in the Israeli military. So Andrew came along with us. And he, he was with us after the ceremony was over, and the commander of her new battalion called her, called Yaeli, my daughter, and told her, welcome to our battalion. I'm looking forward to seeing you on Sunday. And Andrew told us, you know that I never spoke to the commander of my battalion? Never. 
I never dreamt of him making a phone call to me. It never happened. I never, never had a personal conversation with him. And this girl is getting a phone call from the commander of her battalion even before she joins the battalion. So that gives you a sense of the differences between, you know, between the societies. The second thing that happens that that happened was that former Prime Minister Ehud Barak was about to be interviewed for my program. And I wanted to interview him in his home, but his wife didn't want us to come to his home. So we figured it's okay if he comes to my home. And we do the interview in my home. And Andrew was there. And he told me, you know what it means to me to see the way it happens. And again, the proximity, the fact that everybody knows everything, that the former prime minister and minister of defense is coming to my home. And giving. by then he was... He was already, again, Minister of Defense, Ehud Barak. And, and all of a sudden, I figured that the, you know, that the fact, I'll, I'll give you a last example, that, to give you a sense of what I'm talking about when I'm trying to convey to you the feeling and the proximity and the even kind of brotherhood of, of this society. When Yaeli was first posted, uh, as, a, as an officer in the military, she calls me and she says, Mommy, you, you won't believe it. I was, I was posted in the same battalion on which you did a report, which annoyed the military very much, and to the same platoon on which that report was done back in the days. Later on, the commander of her platoon was killed in Operation Protective Edge in 2014 in Gaza. When that happened, I was like a mile from there covering the war in another Palestinian town called Khanyunas. And I was the first one to know that he was killed and I called Yaeli and told her about that. When I was there in Gaza, it so happened that one of the guys who were securing the, the perimeter was the brother of a colleague of mine in the program in which I work. And another soldier there was the son of a minister in the government on which later on I did a report that had to do with suspicions of corruption. So there you have it, the whole story. Everybody knows every, you know, everybody knows everybody and everything is somehow interconnected. If you work with me or with my son or with my daughter in the, you know, in Shuk Machne Yehuda in Jerusalem, you can understand it and you can see it. And the, the final anecdote that I'll give you, and it has to do with the fact that many of the things that worry us in the headlines look different when you see them. And, and I guess you can understand it now after spending a couple of months in Israel. Many things look different when you see them from the perspective of day-to-day -day life, okay? The tensions between Arabs and Jews, the tensions between Ethiopian Israelis and other Israelis, the tensions between gay people and straight people, between gay people and the establishment, the tensions between rich people and poor people. I was a week ago in a concert of the conservatory, the conservatorium in, in which my youngest son is playing. He's a trumpet player. And it was amazing. You could see on the same stage kids with yarmulkas, with kippot, orthodox kids from Jerusalem. Next to them, you could see young female orchestra players with a cleavage and with a dress that leaves no, you know, not, 
Extended to all Andrews, uh, it just follows. Um, I see. Yeah. That, I see that we're running short on time. I have one final question, if you have the time. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, so this is uh, this this podcast will hopefully be shown to a wide range of foreign English speakers, mostly university students, um, where the issue of Israel and Palestine conflict, the Israeli state, Zionism, are all hot topics of discussion. Um, you identified yourself as a, as, a, as a Zionist and you clearly have a really nuanced opinion um, about the realities in this region of the world. I'm wondering if there's anything you want to tell this audience. Uh, you know, when I met you guys about a month ago, uh, I told you a story about a junior officer in the Parachuters Brigade in Israel who approached me after one of the violent rounds in Gaza and told me about an incident that he had when there was fire shot from a house and he didn't know if it's from the house or from outside the house and he had to make a call whether to bring a tank and tear down the house, in which case innocent people might die, or to wait and then take the risk of another round of fire being shot and perhaps injuring or even killing some of these guys. And it was a true dilemma. And he said, you were in my veins. And I said, why? And he said, because I had to imagine the report on your show. If, God forbid, I bring the tank and bring down this house, and it so happens that the fire is not from there, and I cause the death of an innocent family of a mother and father and kids, I already imagined the report on your show. I remember his name was Yuda, and I said, Yuda, I am more than happy to be the model or the agent for your conscience, but it wasn't me in your veins, it was you. It was your inner voice trying to do the right thing. And I'm telling you guys this story, uh, not only because I truly believed that Yuda had a true dilemma, and not only because I, I, I think that if I was in his veins, it, it's for the better. Not because of that. I'm telling you this story because those out there who criticize the 
policies of the government of Israel might very well think about Yuda and about the report that I might have done. Yes, I can criticize the use of power. I can criticize policies. I can criticize military operations, but still believe that the mere existence of the state of Israel in this part of the world is nothing less than a miracle, a moral, just, necessary, historical miracle. It doesn't contradict one another. We can criticize the government of Israel, its policies, its direction. Uh, we can criticize many things that have to do with Israel existence, and yet acknowledge the mere existence of a national home to the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Why? Because it is the only correction to a tragedy that had no nothing similar to it in the history of human of humankind. Because we were born from this tragedy and this is the only place in which we could put this tragedy behind us. Does it give us a license to do things which should not be done? Of course not. Is it legitimate to criticize things that are done in the name of, of you know, that are done here, that are executed? Of course it's legitimate. But there's a huge difference between legitimate criticism on the policies of the government of the state of Israel and the undermining of the mere existence of the state of Israel. This is what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say. And even more so, the more critical we Israelis are towards our government, doesn't matter from the right or from the left, from, 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 any, from any direction, the more critical we will be, the more legitimate our existence here is. This is my best answer to those from the BDS movement or to those from the radical margins of the political debate who, 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 who claim that there's something immoral that has to do with the existence of the state of Israel. As long as we debate within ourselves, as long as the quarrel is within ourselves, it's the best response to those who criticize us. And, 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 and our response is, guys, we don't need your criticism. I mean, it's okay to criticize us. We do it ourselves. And this is what, what differs us what makes us different from many other nations around us. And, and, and the one thing that I, that I hope is that us Israelis, I, I leave aside for a moment the criticism from, from outside. The one thing that I hope for us Israelis is one, that we never stop criticizing ourselves, two, that we never it's not the one thing, it's a, several things that I hope for ourselves. One is that we never stop criticizing ourselves. Two, that we never stop doubting the, the, the justness of, our, of, our, of the direction in which we are going. And three, that maybe one day we will be able to let go on fear, to let go on the sense of victimhood let go on this tragedy that is accompanying us for so many years, to feel as secure as one needs to feel in order to make this leap of faith towards the other, the enemy, those people that live here with us and are here to stay 
as much as we are here to stay. And once that happens, I think the door for another kind of future will be open. A future that I know it sounds, you know, sticky and and I don't know, it, perhaps it, it sounds very trivial, but it's still true, a future that we owe ourselves and our, and our children. You've been listening to Is That Really? I don't know about you, Andrew, but I think that was our best episode yet. Grant, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to our sponsors, the Duke Center for Jewish Studies and the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University for helping make our podcast Is That Really Possible? And to you for listening and hanging out with us. If you've been enjoying the podcast or just want to make our mothers happy, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts Check out our website, www.isthatreally.com, and tell your friends. We hope that you'll join us for the next episode. Thanks for listening.